Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Center for Strategic and International Studies. My name is Kimberly Flowers. Today marks um, a new partnership between the CSIS Global Food Security Project and the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization, or FAO. For the next year, and what I hope is for many years to come, we'll be co-hosting private and public events on agricultural development topics that we feel need to be explored in greater depth. So I'd like to start, of course, by thanking our FAO colleagues, from Linda Sharon, Tom Pesek, and Gabe Lazier, sorry, <laughs> for their vision, for their partnership. Um, it's a pleasure to work with them, and um, I'm really pleased to bring attention to the great work done by FAO. It's certainly an organization whose reports I read diligently, and I think a lot of people um, use their, their analysis and reports frequently. When Van Lender and I were talking, and he brought up um, you know, that he wanted to, to look at the linkages between trade and food security as one of the first topics for an event, it was a really easy yes for me. Um, part of that is this morning's event is not just sort of a one-off for us at CSIS. Um, this is a topic that we are already looking at and, and we'll be exploring in greater depth this year. Um, I'm sure Katrin Coleman, during her um, remarks as a panelist this, um, today, will talk about that this summer, she and I traveled to Kenya and India, where we talked to government leaders and donors and companies and exporters and smallholder farmers um, about this very topic. And she's working right now on writing a paper that we'll launch later this year, um, which I think uh, will be quite exciting. So know that this is not a topic that is going to end here today. I want to give a, a very special thanks to Andrea Durkin. Andrea is stepping in for me at kind of the last minute to moderate for today's event. She's been a great friend to our program for quite some time. She actually authored one of our very first reports called Benchmarking the Business of Agriculture, and she's currently the editor-in-chief of CSIS. CSIS's Trade Vista's website. So she is a very natural leader and a natural person to pick um, for this topic today. I also want to thank my amazing team. Um, I'm recovering from an injury, and it's so great to be able to have a de dependable team to step in when you need to step out. Um, so Reed Hamill, Jillian Locke, and Kelsey Backenberg, thank you so much um, for being so great. And it's my pleasure to start us off this morning by introducing um, Vlamenda Sharon. Um, he's been the director of the FAO Liaison Office for North America for not even quite a year. But in that short time, he's really demonstrated to be an exceptional leader and a real voice within our space. He has decades of experience in national and international government leadership and rural development, agriculture, and food security. And I'm just very grateful that his career path has brought him to DC and that we're able to, to launch this today. Vimlandra? Thank you, Kimberly. Uh, those are very kind words. Uh, good morning and welcome to all of you. Allow me to start by saying that this event represents the first of many that FAO's liaison office for North America will be co-hosting with CSIS. And we are very excited about this new partnership. And we thank Kimberly and her team uh, for stitching it all together. And a special thanks to Kimberly, who was here today despite a very unfortunate accident a couple of weeks back. So. We were always told that yoga is very safe, you know, rest of the exercises and cause you problem, but yoga is safe. Till Kimberly proved to us that, you know, you can have accidents with yoga. So we wish you, I'm sure everybody joins me in wishing you a very swift recovery. Uh, when I first read the title of today's event, the word forgotten immediately leapt out. 
I was thinking to myself how absurd it can be to forget those who contribute in such huge measure to food security and nutrition, the smallholder farmers. 500 million small farms in developing countries supporting the livelihood of up to 2.5 billion people. And they are the forgotten lot. So I'm very pleased individually and professionally that this event is really trying to see how we can mainstream smallholder farmers into agriculture trade for their development and for, their, uh, for the world's development. This has to change, and how it will change is something which our panelists will dive deep into and uh, guide us on the way uh, ahead. Leveling the playing field for smallholder farmers would not only strengthen global food security, it would also help to substantially reduce poverty in developing countries. Forgetting or leaving smallholders out of agriculture trade equation will inevitably push many more people into hunger and poverty. When people in rural areas do not make a decent living, they are often forced to leave it. The economic migration has implications of social tension, urban poverty, and conflict. Now, what are we as an organization, what is FAO doing in this uh, field? So, through our work in more than 130 countries worldwide, FAO supports the effective engagement of governments in the formulation of trade agreements that are conducive to improved food security by providing rigorous evidence on the implication of changes in the trade policies, providing capacity development in the use of this evidence, and facilitating neutral dialogue. In addition, FAO supports countries in the design and implementation of trade policies supportive to enhanced food security. We also pay, play a key role in the development of national plans to scale up support to smallholder farmers to develop their entrepreneurial skill, capacities, and market viability. I really hope that in not too distant a future, the current equation will change and that panels like this and discussions like this will act as catalysts for policymakers to really bring in policies which makes smallholder farmers an integral part of agricultural trade. I'm confident that our distinguished keynote speaker and panel in sharing their insights into these complex issues will help me help us show the way forward. So without much further ado, it's my great pleasure to introduce our keynote speaker, Mr. Jason Huffmaster. I hope you I got your name wrong. Okay. Acting Deputy Secretary for Trade and Agricultural Affairs at the US Department of Agriculture. Jason previously served as Acting Deputy Undersecretary for Farm and Foreign Agriculture Services at USDA. He has been engaged in agricultural farm and trade policy for over 25 years, including almost 20 years at USDA and with the Office of the US Trade Representative. His responsibilities have included serving as the lead US negotiator on agriculture and World Trade Organization Doha Round negotiations, the Central American Free Trade Agreement, and China's accession to the WTO. He was instrumental in finalizing the recent agreement to allow the importing of U.S. beef to China. And that is no mean achievement, to get China to start importing your beef. Jason received a bachelor's degree from the University of California at Berkeley, a master's from the University of California at San Diego, and a law degree from Georgetown University. I think the establishment of the, the new position that now holds at USDA, and Secretary Perdue's nomination of JS to fill it, 
Jason DeFillet demonstrates the critical importance that United States assigns to the issue of agricultural trade. I think it also signals the continued leadership role that the United States intends to play in this area. So Jason, the floor is all yours. All right, good morning. Uh, thank you all for uh, having me here. It's a good opportunity to always talk about trade and agriculture. It's what we wake up every day thinking about and, uh, and happy to talk about it. I'm impressed uh, with the idea of setting up this series. You know, we see a close relationship between improving uh, livelihoods for consumers and producers around the world through integration into the global trading system. So I'm happy to see uh, that, uh, that CSIS, FAO, and others have dug into to this topic. I think you got a great panel today. I've worked with three of your panelists, and I can attest to their fierce uh, capacity as trade negotiators. So. <laughs> Watch out for them. And the fourth, whom I've just met today, showed up with an Iron Man backpack on. So this is a strong group you've got here. Um, so I want to say just a couple things about uh, the USDA's perspective on trade, agriculture, smallholders, and, and development. We have two uh, feet in this conversation. One is on the policy side, and the second is on the program side. And I'll say a few things about both of them. On, on the policy side, uh, we are definitely leading the charge for an open, transparent, predictable, and fair world trading system. U.S. farmers depend on the world market for their profitability. Uh, because of that, USDA is uh, deeply involved in negotiating new trade agreements, enforcing agreements, supporting the institutions that allow for uh, countries and producers and consumers to trade agricultural products. Uh, not only is this economically vital for U.S. farmers, but we believe that this market-based, open, predictable system uh, is the key to increasing global income, the capacity to purchase things, including purchasing food, and also uh, is the key to providing other countries the opportunity to have uh, benefit from economic growth, opportunities to expand agricultural production, and find new customers and better prices for their products. So because of that, uh, we're deeply involved in trade policy formulation that talks about reducing unjustified barriers to trade and facilitating trade between countries. Uh, we're very involved in international institutions. Uh, that develop standards that facilitate trade, uh, that provide uh, guidelines that encourage uh, countries to develop open market policies, uh, and that provide technical assistance to, provide, to allow governments and producers all over the globe to better uh, pr prepare their farmers to interact in the global economy. In this key moment of our time here, where we have the scourge of global protectionism, hanging over global markets, uh, it can't be underestimated the importance of the work in this policy discussion. You know, we, we need to remind people of the importance of open markets, how this provides opportunities for farmers all over the world, that this gets them better prices, gives them better access to inputs, get them better technology, and certainly a better future. So this is a big deal for us. Uh, but we're also very involved on the program side. Uh, USDA has been active for 
over 100 years in helping U.S. farmers become more productive, to better adopt technologies, to better uh, implement productivity enhancing uh, activities, to, to provide extension to uh, our farmers, to invest in research, uh, to set up U.S. markets to provide opportunities for farmers. So we think we know a little bit about how farmers can increase, increase their productivity, how they can become more productive. And through our work uh, in uh, international arena, we are trying to share that information as well. So uh, there's a number of programs that we operate. Many of them, of course, are just domestic. When, when, when the U.S. learns something, uh, we think we can be a model and can share that with other countries. So the work that we've done in terms of research, in terms of extension, in terms of institution building here is something we, we are happy to share. But we're also involved in other countries as well. Uh, you may be aware of some of our flagship programs and Jocelyn Brown from USDA is here. She runs them for us, so a good resource for you. Uh, but uh, we have a f uh, programs that help countries invest in their productivity, if it's building roads to allow producers to get their product to market, if it's building dams to help water insecure countries better provide uh, uh, water control, if it's investing in cold chain facilities that help domestic, uh, local markets uh, uh, preserve the quality of products, uh, we have programs that help invest in that. Uh, we have programs that help uh, provide uh, support for other countries as they try and enter into international organizations, places like the Codex or the World uh, Animal Health Organization. Uh, we have helped to explain how those organizations work to other countries. We've financed training for them to participate in those organizations. We've, we've disseminated the guidelines and standards that are developed in those organizations so that other countries can not only adopt them for their own national use, but set up an international system that is gonna facilitate the trade of products across borders. Uh, we have a very healthy program of, of exchange where we will finance uh, visitors from other countries to come here, learn about the U.S. system, uh, learn about how we do things in agriculture and how that can relate back to their programs at home, this famous Cochrane uh, Boer Log uh, and um, uh, uh, Jocelyn knows them, uh, programs. So, uh, so, so, we've got, uh, so we've got a foot in the program side as well. We think that we are doing things that can be helpful to other countries uh, and we think that of course, the underlying principle of all of this is that we have ideas that are worth sharing, we have markets that are worth opening, and we have products that are worth trading. And through that, uh, we, we definitely see an investment in an integrated system, uh, and we think that that can help producers of all size in all countries to get better prices for their products and more opportunities for what they do. So this is, uh, just to wrap up here, this is, I think, a key topic. Domestically, we've got big discussions about what's the shape of the international economy. Internationally, many countries are, are, are trying to figure out the appropriate policy posture to take, so we need to be engaged, but there's certainly a lot of specific things that we can help with, even on the ground, even today, to provide opportunities. So thank you for the opportunity to share these words. Thank you for the, uh, putting together this conference, and I wish you all success.
Fantastic. Well, those were great scene-setting remarks, and we look forward to, we're going to move into the panel session here. We have a little over an hour, so um, let me just start by introducing myself. Thank you, Kimberly, for those very kind remarks. Um, just to amplify slightly, um, I am uh, the owner and principal of my own consulting firm, but as Kimberly mentioned, happily I have an affiliation here at CSIS. Uh, I'm an adjunct fellow with the um, Shoal Chair for International Business. Um, and as part of that program, I serve as editor-in-chief of Trade Vistas, which is a microsite here at CSIS um, where we're basically engaging the general public um, on trade policy, which is extremely active right now, um, if you've been following the news. Uh, and importantly, we try to have conversations with people about the way in which trade affects their lives and their communities, which um, is exactly the kind of conversation that we want to be having today, which is the role of trade policy, the opportunities and the challenges um, for smallholder farmers. Um, and I also have the privilege of writing for the program. Um, and this is a tremendous panel. I've had the privilege of working with these ladies in my, um, over my trade career, and I'm going to spend a moment to introduce them. Uh, you have their full bios in the packet, so let me just give you the top line. Katrin Coleman, uh, to my left, is um, a newly minted senior associate um, here at CSIS uh, with Kimberly's program, with the Food Security Program. And she has been a pioneer in this space. She created something called the New Markets Lab. Um, and the New Markets Lab is taking a very unique approach to marrying the economic, legal, regulatory disciplines um, with food security. Uh, and she has been delving deep into these areas that most of us dare not go uh, into the specific regulatory realm to kind of figure this all out and what it means for um, small farmers in particular. Um, we also have Flori Lizer. Um, Flori sort of needs no introduction in the trade community. She has been um, blazing a trail for a number of years. She is currently the president and CEO of the Corporate Council for Africa, um, and she's the first woman to lead that organization since 1993. Congratulations. We're happy about that. Um, before that, she served in a variety of trade roles and most recently as the assistant USTR for Africa at the, in the office of the U.S. Trade Representative. Um, and then finally, uh, we have Chantaline Carpentier, who is the chief of the New York office of UNCTAD, the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development. Um, she has also a long and storied history um, in the area of international trade and the nexus between trade and sustainable development, having worked also at the UN Department of Economic and Social Affairs. Um, and then prior to that, um, quite a bit of uh, extensive um, research uh, credentials with entities like the Wallace Institute for Alternative Agriculture and IFPRI which whom I'm sure we are all familiar with. So with that um, series of introductions and with the background that Jason provided, um, we're going to do this. We're going to have each of the panelists sort of um, present what they are interested in presenting to you, but then we'll make it highly interactive. I will ask you questions, and then we will open it up to the audience, because most, the most interesting questions usually come from the audience. So. Um, let me begin with you, Katrin. Um, you've been traveling with Kimberly to India. Um, I know you've done extensive travel throughout uh, East Africa, looking at this question of um, the legal and regulatory complexities and what that means for smallholder farmers. So tell us what you're seeing on the ground. 
Thank you so much, and thank you so much for having me here this morning. It's really an honor to be part of this and to be joining forces with Kimberly here at CSIS. After traveling with her, I can say she's one of the most resilient people I have ever met, but um, I'm just happy that she's here with us this morning, too. Uh, so I am, as Andrea has said, I'm going to talk about the regulatory environment a little bit in this context, and I, I want to start with something that Jason said, which is, how do we create open, transparent, fair, market-based systems? And I, I agree with that. I think that is the objective. But I do think that the systems as they currently operate don't always incorporate the needs of small farmers. And so that's one of the things that we set out to do on our, our trip. Kimberly mentioned that we have a bigger project that we're working on where we're really taking this bottom-up approach to thinking about the regulatory environment, the enabling environment for agriculture and food security and how that links to trade, which is something that I've been working on for quite some time and have been very fascinated with. I think there's a strong connection between trade and food security. And I think, to me, the regulatory environment is kind of the key. So I'll share some of the findings that we have. Just briefly, we're going to have a longer event on the report, which I hope you'll all join us for um, later this year. But before I do that, just really quickly, too, I'll tell you um, what my organization does in addition to what, what Andrea so eloquently um, said. So, so I would call us a law and development center. Um, we really focus on this, this aspect of, of law and regulation from the perspective of those in the market who don't always have a voice, don't always have the ability to shape the process. And I think that's exactly what we're here to talk about this morning. Our, we, we do programmatic work throughout Sub-Saharan Africa, also in Asia though, we work in India, we work in China, and through the course of that work, we train lawyers in how to think differently about these issues. So, so just a quick introduction to, to that. I also teach law school too, so I, I think about these things quite a bit. Um, but let me tell you what we've been looking at in this report and how we've been linking trade and food security. So trade and food security have always been linked, I think. I think it's impossible to really think about food security without thinking about the role of the market in delivering food. Um, but I think that we're looking at some different dimensions to this whole question right now. Um, I was on a panel yesterday talking about trade and development where we were discussing NAFTA. And I'm not going to go into NAFTA in great detail. <laughs> I'd be happy if somebody else wants to. But, but it was interesting to me because some of the principles that we have been applying in trade and development I think are being questioned a little bit in this current conversation. And I feel like nowhere is that more important to think about than in the context of a conversation around food security. So what really is the role of developing countries in trade? How does that play out? How do we think about some of these frameworks at the international level, at the regional level? And most of what I'm going to talk about this morning is really at the country level. Um, but I think that it's important for us to have this conversation now because I do think that some of these things that we've, at least some of us in the, in, you know, in the community who've been thinking about these things have been sort of assuming to be given for quite a long time are now maybe up for discussion again. Um, so I just toss that out, not, not to be alarmist, but just to say that I think this is a really good time to be having this conversation. So 
as I said before, I think the enabling environment is central to how trade and food security are linked. I think the nature of markets has changed so much. They're very, very interconnected. It's almost impossible to imagine markets functioning without things constantly moving from one place to another. And I think that also the rules around the markets have changed. So in, in, we were in Kenya and India, as Kimberly said, talking to very diverse stakeholders. And you can still see in many places the informal system that operates, sometimes alongside the formal system. And, but but in, in, in the food security and trade context, I think that this formal system of rules has become more complex, more intricate, and really does have a very profound impact on the farmer. Again, even if farmers don't have any ability to shape what that system looks like. So what we tried to do is understand where some of these questions come up, starting with the farm level. So that's where I'm going to start. And again, I'll just briefly mention a few things and we can talk a little bit more in the discussion about some of these. I think at the production level, there are a couple of big things that seem to come up. One is just what farmers are encouraged to produce. And in just about every country, government has a fairly heavy hand in encouraging the market where it's going to go. The countries that we were looking at, of course, the farmers have been encouraged very much to produce maize in Kenya, you know, grains, rice we looked at in India. So I think that is, there. It's, it's almost impossible to kind of imagine the market without the government really intervening in some of these areas. Now, what does that mean, though, for the farmer? The farmer, everybody we talked to said, the farmer has one overriding objective, which is to make money. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? This farming has to, agriculture has to be a business and farmers have to be able to see a return. And if they can't see a return, and if they can't see a market, they won't produce enough to feed people who need it. That is just the way I think that this works. So we have to be able to understand from a farmer's perspective that that market has to be visible, it has to be accessible, and that government, when it's intervening, has to be thinking about the farmers interest in making sure that this is a viable business. So we looked at some different crops in our study. We looked at beans in Kenya, which is the second most highly traded product um, after maize, but it's very informal and not very commercialized. And we were trying to understand what some of the policy implications of that are. We also looked at horticulture, which is a, a sector where farmers can make a lot of money and they can make money quickly, but it can also be a really important component of food security, delivering highly nutritious food quickly to um, to larger populations, and I think it reflects some of the change in consumer demand as well. So again, I'm just going to touch on these things quickly. One of the other things, and those of you who know me well know that this is an area that's very dear to me, are inputs. Farmers' access to high-quality seed, high-quality fertilizer, and of course, those of you who know me also know that at my organization we've done a lot of work looking at the regulatory environment on these issues. It tends to be really complex. So Kenya, for example, one of the countries we looked at, even though it's made great strides in changing its regulatory environment for seed, for example, still has a lot of regulatory hurdles that you have to jump through to get seed to the market. They're experimenting. They're looking at different ways that they can streamline the process, for example, by bringing the private sector into the process in things like inspections, which Zambia, where I just was last week, has done fairly effectively and has a pretty vibrant seed sector as a result. So these are some of the things that we're trying to draw out in our report. Now, of course, getting to the market is crucial for farmers, as I said before. And I think there is somehow sometimes this idea 
idea that getting to the market is largely about infrastructure, about getting access to storage infrastructure and getting access to the right kinds of trucks. Um, and, and that certainly is part of it. I think that infrastructure is a big issue, but there is a regulatory aspect here as well on storage, on transport. Um, again, I won't go into great detail, but I will say, though, that these are things that we need to think about in a very interconnected way. And standards for the market really come into play here, too. How is food being stored? Is it being stored in a way that it can be sold? Is it, there's a lot of food loss in the countries that we looked at, too. And I think that that's something else that we can address by thinking about some of the rules around the market. Um, it's interesting, too, because I think that there are some approaches that are being looked at that can leapfrog some of these challenges, both on the infrastructure side and on the regulatory side. Something like warehouse receipt systems, where you really do need, it, it, it bypasses some of the challenges around finance, around storage, even around um, compliance with standards. But you need a strong legal system in order to pull off a warehouse receipt system. So I think that's, some of those solutions are things that we could possibly look at even more. And then, on the consumer side, the market is becoming more and more of an interest as well and being able to trace every step of the market back to the farmer. Now, that makes, that puts added complexity into the system, but I think that we could take that interest in tracing back to the farmer and use it in a way that's going to help farmers to be able to deliver what they need to deliver, um, to produce high quality food for the market and earn an income in the process so that they stay in business. So I think that the whole issue around traceability, which is something that um, a lot of countries are really taking an interest in and starting to regulate more heavily. China, for example, has new regulations in this area that they're trying to roll out very quickly on tracing everything in the market. So I think we could use that to a, perhaps to our advantage of what we're talking about today and find ways to connect that. So the last thing that I want to say is that trade is two-way. Even if we're looking at a very bottom-up approach, we have to really take into account the fact that markets are much more complicated than, than just what I've explained, kind of tracing back up the value chain, right? And the United States, as we heard from Jason this morning, is a big player in global agricultural markets. Um, it's interesting because I think what the United States is trading in the market has shifted. We are now selling more animal-based products, more horticulture, more consumer beverages that are going to have a growing market in places like Kenya and India that we were looking at. Um, we've also been a really active donor. And one of the things that we heard consistently from everybody we met with was that this transfer of knowledge that Jason talked about is critical. Also, transfer of technology is critical. And so maybe that's something else that we could focus on a bit more. And I, I do want to mention, too, one of the people we met with said the WTO has lost its fangs which I thought was an interesting way of thinking about this. But the WTO actually is still really relevant in this context, too. The Trade Facilitation Agreement, um, which recently went into force, can have a profound impact on moving food in the market. But there are other aspects, too, and maybe this is something that we need to reopen. So I just quickly, to, to, sum, you know, to summarize all this, and again, there's a lot more detail that we'll have in the report, um, which we look forward to sharing with all of you. I think the market diversification piece is really important. On beans, we heard too, um, we, we talked about the Orphan Crop Consortium that is trying to commercialize some of these crops that haven't been commercialized. Beans, one of them, sorghum, there are a lot of others. So I think that's really an interesting area to think about how do you encourage those crops to become much more part of the commercial market so that farmers can um, earn income from them and that they can be traded in a way that, that brings benefit. The regional trade focus is really important, particularly in a place like Kenya. Beans, we heard they're trying to do bean corridors now. 
to really connect all of the areas of, of production and demand um, in Eastern Africa and throughout Sub-Saharan Africa. I think the traceability piece that I mentioned is really um, something that we could pivot off of, and there I would say there are good practices both on the market side and on the regulatory side that could be brought into the conversation even more, again, from this perspective of what the farmer needs. Technology, I mentioned already. And then the final thing that I will say is that, and this is something that's very dear to the work of my organization, that I really think we need to think about some models for making sure that voices of farmers and those who are underrepresented in the market get into this conversation around how the rules of the market are designed and how they're applied. And I could say much more about that, but I'll leave it with that. And thanks again for having me this morning. Um, fantastic. You've given us a lot of um, ideas for questions. I'm, and you, I'm touched on so many different topics. It was a really good sort of um, overview of what we're talking about throughout the entire value chain. So we'll come back around to some of the things that you um, teased us with uh, in those remarks. Um, Flori, so as the CEO of the Corporate Council on Africa, you're very focused on US-Africa commercial relations across all sectors and also within food and agriculture. Um, what kind of policies do you think will help promote more two-way trade in this sector? So first of all, thank you so much for uh, having me here and being a part of this uh, panel. And Kimberly, we wish you uh, um, uh, lots of luck in your uh, recovery. Um, uh, I'm delighted to be here. I am not, I, and I asked Kimberly about this. I said, now, I'm not an ag expert. Are you sure <laughs> you want me to come and talk about this? And um, she assured me that you know, given what CCA does, which is to promote trade and investment um, and business engagement between uh, the United States and, and Africa, between US companies and African companies, large and small. We have the big guys, which I won't name some of them, but you know some of our large multinationals, but over half of CCA's membership are small and medium-sized companies. Um, in addition, sort of where we come in at is um, we have about 10 areas that we focus on, focus areas for CCA, which includes trade and trade facilitation, but we also have agribusiness. And so um, just as an example, uh, we're having an agribusiness forum uh, in Des Moines, Iowa on October 17th on the sidelines of the World Food Prize. Ours will be the day before. And part of the reason for that is because um, this particular year, the World Food Prize is going to Dr. Adesina, the president of the African Development Bank, um, with whom we work uh, closely on a number of issues, included, including some of the uh, trade value chains and the work that AFDB um, is doing to promote more diversification um, in, in Africa's uh, trade, both regionally and globally. And so um, he will be speaking not only at the World Food Prize, but um, he's going to be speaking and opening up our um, uh, agribusiness forum the day before the WFP starts. So we see the intersection between um, trade, between um, agribusiness. ICT is another area that we focus on. We know the importance of um, uh, technologies uh, um, in terms of increasing productivity across these value chains. And so 
Um, again, we have a number of angles. Infrastructure is another area that CCA focuses on. Um, if you don't have the roads and the ports functioning effectively, if you don't have the cold chains, et cetera. So, so we come at this from um, um, a lot of different angles. Um, what, what I thought, though, I would focus my a um, uh, few remarks on and look forward to um, more engagement and discussion with um, uh, the panelists and all of you um, is, is uh, on what I see as an overlooked link between farm and factory um, on the role that um, African value-added food processing can play in positively impacting African farmers. I, I, I have traveled all over the world but uh, most of my years have been in Africa, so I'm focusing my comments on this in terms of Africa and what I've seen on the ground there, both at farms, I've been to many farms in Africa, but I've also been to many factories. Um, and there's this link between the farm and value-added food processing in Africa, which I think is, as I said, um, often overlooked, and how <clears throat> if, if, if African farmers, if, the, if there was more of, um, um, of a, uh, a, 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 a thinking about how to link these up, we would see um, that, that the farmers and their well-being and their food security are significantly impacted by what those um, uh, in the factories are doing. So one of the things that I saw over and over again during my years as assistant USTR for Africa and leading um, USG efforts to implement the African Growth and Opportunity Act, AGOA. I think many of you know that's the US program that allows um, most African products to come into the US duty free. And in my years of doing that, there was this disconnect between those that were focused on African subsistence farming and others that were pushing to get the value added for not only agricultural products but others and to ship them across the continent and beyond, including to the U.S. under AGOA. Um, now, while AGOA has um, led to an increase in exports of African agricultural products over its 17-year histories, there has been an increase, I should say. Um, AGOA, frankly, was never focused on raw commodities, um, which I think many of you know, it takes many years to meet stringent U.S. sanitary and phytosanitary standards. But rather, the focus of AGOA was on providing a competitive advantage of duty-free access for African value-added products to come into the market. So, for example, lots of countries can supply the U.S. with fresh pineapples, but the Africans, through AGOA, were given the opportunity to supply pineapple juice, jams, canned pineapples, et cetera, to the market duty-free and give them that competitive edge that they really needed there. And such value-added food products, obviously, they also need to meet standards. But those standards are not as difficult and don't take nearly as long to meet as the risk assessments and mitigation processes that are necessary with raw fruits and vegetables. So there was a real thinking about, you know, rather than taking, you know, six, seven years going through a PRA, a pest risk assessment with APHIS here, um, and, and, and finally being able to ship your pineapples or your tomatoes or whatever the product might be, that um, we were really hoping that what would get fast-tracked is um, a process for producing the pineapple juice, which could happen 
in you know 18 months to two years um, and get into U.S. markets and in the meantime support uh, job creation on the continent, attract investment into um, manufacturing um, and continue to work on building Africa's industrial base. So that, that was the, the, the thought behind AGOA from the very beginning. So as a result, um, African countries are now exporting increasing amounts of things like cocoa powder, cocoa butter, um, and even small amounts of chocolate um, into the U.S. They're uh, sending us shea butter products, um, a whole range of, of juices, uh, processed fruits and vegetables, um, pepper sauces, honey, we could go on and on. And all of these are coming into the U.S. Um, um, there are many examples, but one that uh, I was most recently um, involved in and aware of um, was um, when I went to the AGOA Forum in uh, uh, Togo, in August, um, I, I had the pleasure of meeting with the owner of a U.S. company. They're a fair trade company out in the state of Washington. The owner um, is originally from Togo. His wife from the U.S. met, you know, when she was in the Peace Corps there, and they process large quantities of high-quality shea butter um, in Togo and ship it to their U.S. partner, which is Whole Foods. And at the AGOA Forum, I had a chance to sit with both Whole Foods and the people from Alafia is the name of the, the, the company. Um, and um, what I love the most about that, I didn't get a chance to go to the factory. I really wanted to. That's, I love doing that um, in Africa, but I didn't get a chance in Togo. I was just there for three days. Um, but um, that factory employs over 800 people. Um, um, and they also indirectly support over 11,000 mostly women who grow and collect the shea nuts. And I think most of us are aware that shea nuts get very little in terms of um, um, the market price for them. Obviously, shea butter, especially high quality shea butter, gets quite a bit more. Um, so it's, it's affecting from the farm uh, all the way to um, the factory and frankly, um, all the way to um, the US side, uh, we can call that side the fork. Um, if, if we'd like. So it brings me to the issue of the need for more work to be done um, by governments, by farm advocates, and others on how to more effectively increase production of farm inputs needed for value-added processing in factories in Africa. Um, I think as was said by um, uh, Vimlendra, the mainstreaming, and I'm going to say African farmers, into agricultural trade and agricultural um, value chains. This is important. Um, uh, those factories that are in Africa, and I have visited many of them, are essentially captive markets for African agricultural products. And they need those products in sufficient quantities and at the, in the right quality to be able to competitively produce and export the food products that end up on store shelves and ultimately tables around the world. So from farm again to factory to fork. Yet over the years I visited a number, so many frankly factories in Africa where the factories couldn't actually get sufficient and adequate supplies of the inputs of the actual farm products that met the standards and um, could then be used in processing. So just as an example, when I was in Zambia, one of my visits there, I visited a tomato processing plant. 
which employed probably about 250 workers there, had um, high-end machinery. There was a U.S. investor. I think it was um, supported by uh, OPIC. Um, so, you know, we saw it as a, um, uh, an AGOA success story, um, uh, producing canned tomatoes and shipping them to the U.S. But what I learned as I went through the factory and uh, talked to the, um, uh, uh, the people there is that often they had to shut the machines down, which you can imagine how much that affects your competitiveness, um, because they didn't have the supply of the tomatoes. And then sadly, I learned um, just last year that uh, the factory had indeed closed. So that is um, an example of where um, you know, if, if we could um, get the right products, and, and Katrin was touching on this, um, um, produced, not necessarily staple products, but products that are meant for um, uh, food processing or processed food products, um, and, and, and then thinking about the fact that, you know, we, at least in all my travels in Africa, and maybe some of you have seen it as well, I'm sure Katrin and, um, you know, others have as well, where you've got all these people, uh, usually women, in the market, all selling the same products, you know, in the market or on the side of the road, and then you see these products rotting, um, not able to get to the market. Um, in time or being purchased in time. And so you get this disconnect between the fact that the factories needed those products, yet you see on the sides of the road that the products are not getting there. And, you know, I would very much like to see how um, we can get better policies um, and, and, and better support to, to link those through, uh, uh, together. Um, you know, I think that the better coordination between those supporting farmers and those promoting African value-added agricultural production and trade, um, if we could see the changes in the kinds of farm produce grown away from staples, productivity improvements and higher yields of the inputs grown specifically for processed food production on the continent, investments into cold chains and other infrastructure that would increase Africa's share in supplying not only um, the food that Africans consume, but that you and I consume. So this, in my view, could have a major impact on African farmers, their security, you could call it food security, um, but we could also say on their prosperity. And so I look forward to um, um, hearing more about um, how others can view this as well. Um, thank you. Flori, thank you for that perspective. Um, Chantaline, so you've been focused on trends in global trade commodities um, uh, over the last few years, opportunities that are growing for smallholder farmers to be part of global value chains. Um, and you've been doing a lot in trade capacity building um, and aid for trade. So tell us what is happening in the world of trade capacity building right now to take advantage of those opportunities. Thanks so much, Andrea, and thank you so much uh, both to CSIS and to our colleagues from FAO to invite us uh, to this event. I can't thank you enough to having thinking of having this dialogue. It's extremely important. Um, 
I will start by actually touching on what Flory just mentioned, because I think we've all been to Latin America, it's the same thing in Africa, where we see these ladies and these gentlemen on the side of the road trying to sell a product, and yet um, we talk to the manufacturers and the, 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 our importers, and they say we can't get the raw product. And I think what we've the missing link, and the Gate Foundation has worked a little bit on that initially, is that we keep forgetting that we need to support the SMEs, the small medium enterprises in those countries, because we need to find the already decent processor locally that can procure from those farmers and do the, the primary processing so that you don't have that old waste of those mangoes and those bananas or pineapple that are just rotting there, but they're pre-processed so that you can start thinking about connecting them to the value chain. So I think I would start with that. And oftentimes, the transnational corporation in our work on investment facilitation and promotion do not feel confident because of the either the added risk or perceived risk or the return on investment to do greenfield investment in these. But if we can identify those processors for them and help them either do a joint venture or support those so you can start the whole thing happening, it, it's, it's, it has transformational um, um, productive capacity impact and in the value in the life of those farmers, 50% um, of which are women, by the way. So I'm glad you mentioned the women issue. Um, having said that, we also know that small orders um, are the backbone of several of the commodity-dependent countries, um, especially the least developed countries. Uh, they not only produce food security for their own country, but also provide us with the tea, the coffee, the cacao, mm -hmm. all the good stuff we like to have for breakfast and dessert. Uh, we couldn't have it without them. So we are, and, and I think it was uh, Andrea and Catherine both mentioned, we are interconnected. So there's no way we can do it without them, and they can't do it without us. So the good news is, how many of you have heard of the sustainable development goal that have been ag agreed to by all of our countries, 193 of them? Great, love to hear that. Um, so basically, these are not UN goals. These are people's goals. And the sustainable development goals include goal two, which is on food security, sustainable agriculture, and what's the third thing I'm missing? <laughs> I'm missing one here. Um, food ending hunger, ending hunger, of course. Um, and so basically, our member states, all of our heads of state, have agreed that food, this goal was extremely important. Uh, we didn't finish that goal under the MDGs, and now we have a mandate to keep working hard collaboratively on that goal. We also know, I think, what the solutions are, because if I tell you what um, was decided by 183 members, a lot of these countries at war with one another, but still agreed that uh, the means of implementation increase investment in international cooperation in infrastructure, it's been mentioned, agriculture extension services, which mentioned by Jason and Catherine and you, technology development, prevent and correct trade restriction and distortion, eliminate export subsidies, proper functioning of a commodity market and der derivatives, timely access to market information, and limit food price volatility. So we basically know the problem. We have an agreement on what the problem is. We know presumably what the solutions are. Now all we need is political will and putting all of our respective knowledge together to have an impact and have a transformational impact on the ground. So this is the reason I'm very uh, confident that we can have a huge impact in the life of these people in diversifying their economy as well as eliminating poverty because a lot of these people actually live in poverty, especially the 50% of women working in rural areas in agriculture. So having says, said that, um, I want to go back to this idea of, of uh, the, the SMEs and connecting them and the investment facilitation and promotion. But first, I want to go over some of the trends in agriculture. Some of these have been mentioned. But there are 
Um, some worrying trend, as Jason mentioned, there is kind of a backlash against trade and globalization. Uh, and part of it is because we've not been taking care of the negative impact of trade is good. It lifts, it lifts, it does increase uh, growth and, and GDP, but not for everybody. So again, we have not worked at developing this SME to connect those poor people to market. If they're not connected to market, you can have all the free trade agreement you want. These people will still not have access to market and not benefit from the trade. We've seen it with NAFTA. I use for that work at the NAFTA. I'm a pro-NAFTA. Happy to talk to you offline. Um, <laughs> Um, so basically, we, 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 the trade has been decreasing. Because of this, we've seen since the, the financial crisis, the food crisis, trade has not picked up the way it was before. So output is increasing faster than trade. We all know that our country have developed true trade. So what is it to say that on the one hand, we have sustainable development goal where we all committed to eliminate poverty, and yet we do not give access to market to the people that need access to those markets to eliminate poverty. So either hypocritical or we're not consistent in our rhetoric, and I'm very glad Catherine, and the work that you're doing, and the work that you're doing on implementation as well to address those. Um, and, and it's not the tariff. The tariff are very low on agriculture, especially internationally. They are still, we need to work in Africa. The largest tariff in agriculture are amongst African countries. And given that the international trade demand is not picking up, we need to rely on the regional demand and connect those, um, those these corridors that you were mentioning, Catherine, of, of, um, of agricultural production and supply chain. Um, so it is not the non-tariff barriers, because they're very low. Um, but they are among South-South trade, though they, do, they are a problem. So we need to address that. And, and yet there are still some of those tariffs that cost billions of dollars to developing countries, especially in cotton and some other sectors where we still, as international community, could do much better to uh, allow access to these uh, small producers. We also have... Um, so I want to go now uh, to, to what we've been uh, discussing in terms of... So UNCTAD is supporting the African Union and um, our other colleagues, the Regional Commission for Africa, in to basically, we're finalizing the, the, the Continental Free Trade Agreement. Hopefully, this is going to operate or open up some of the customs. You literally have, you know, we're talking here about food rotting at the, at the side of the road, but you have trucks that are not refrigerated waiting for six hours to pass one custom, right. and then it, wait, it, it finally clears, and it goes on the other side and wait another six hours That's to clear right. that custom. Mm -hmm. So if we could do, and then so this is why this trade facilitation um, agreement that has just been uh, approved at the WTO has just been uh, entering, um, is, is so important. And UNCTAD with the WTO and other colleagues are working on really facilitating trade and reducing cost of trade for those farmers. Um, the price are not increasing. Um, after the, the crisis, basically, the price went down. Then they went up with El Nino, and now we're seeing another dip in the price. So we can't rely on price increase for farmers to get better. Mm -hmm. So we need to increase their productivity. Exactly. And I think we've all talked about that. And we know how to increase productivity, but we need to increase productivity sustainably. Because we have other goals, <laughs> we have 17 sustainable development goals, and one of them is preservation of the water, uh, preser the preservation of the environment of, of uh, uh, the surrounding those farms, and they are means to achieve increased production in agriculture that are sustainable for those farmers, and actually that might um, be even better for them, given that they have such a hard time achieving, uh, having access to those input that you were mentioning, Catherine. Um, <laughs> We, I'm also very, we're also very pleased with the Bali um, uh, decision on stockholding. 
Um, it has been an issue because, as you know, increasingly the price of food and the price of, of oil are linked. And therefore, when we have a food crisis regionally, we get this problem of if you have to fly the food somewhere, it's extremely expensive because now you have to bring the food from across the world at a at where all prices is high and transportation costs is high and the food price is high. So we need to have, we agreed, our nations have agreed that we need to have stockholding. And it is actually, our members have agreed to not raise if it goes out of the ember box uh, content, that it's okay, we're not going to raise an issue with those countries because it is uh, in the name of food security, which is a great step forward. Um, so it is the WTO, as you said, Catherine, is still relevant and it still does good things. It still needs to set these rules that are needed so we can actually trade in a way that we're not always in a fight with one another. Um, and then it brings back to the aid for trade and trade facilitation. We have these agreements, but now what we need is political will and investment. So again, even after the, um, the food crisis in 20, 2008, it is amazing that from 1995 to 2015, the policy support to farmers have been reduced in developing countries, both in real and in uh, relative terms. So basically, it went down to 36% of developed country farmers to 20%. So it, is, it surprised me when I looked at it for this conference. I would have thought it went up. What is it that we don't get? <laughs> it seems like we all know. So how is that money going down? And then I look at the statistics for aid for trade, and only 18.3% of the 300 billion that's been dispersed to aid for trade went for ag support and food security. So it is, it, we need to raise, we need to do advocacy. We need to raise awareness about these issues. And that's again why I'm so happy you guys are having these panels and this series of talk. So these issues can be brought to the fort because it may be that just people are not aware of these issues. So I just want to conclude in um, raising um, two other issues. One is the voluntary standards, um, sustainability standards. Uh, which add another layer of complexity for access to market for small farmers and tourism. So, Flory, you did mention the link between farmers and manufacturing. And in our latest report on Africa and tourism, um, we show that basically there's a huge potential for the tourism industry. First of all, most countries in Africa, and most countries, by the way, do not have a real tourism policy that actually link with the other ministries. So yet you can have the synergies amongst tourism and the infrastructure and rural development and uh, uh, preservation of your parks and whatever. Um, and second, that if you were to be able to procure your food for the hostel industry, for the tourism industry, from your country or at least the region, you could have a huge transformational impact. And it's much easier, Flory mentioned the sanitary, phytosanitary uh, standard, much easier to first meet the standard locally and, and regionally than those of the Europe or, or North America. So if you start on that path while you're waiting for your eight years to get approved by US, <laughs> US you could actually start selling to the or urban market, because also a lot of those urban markets are actually procuring from outside as opposed to within the region or the country, and for your tourism industry. And that could actually be a positive um, uh, branding for your tourism sector. Now, on the voluntary standard, we, we do expect at UNCTA that with the Sustainable Development Goal, our countries will put in place new policies to achieve the goals on environmental health, on, on, um, on health issues, on, and other sectors. And therefore, we're going to have to keep an eye on how that affect market access for developing countries, that they are aware. So we have a database to, to, so we, where with WTO where we, we collect all these, new, um, all these new measures so that farmers can actually prepare and we can help them prepare for those new standards. Um, 
But we also need to increase our support to those farmers to be able to meet these standards and the hugely increasing voluntary standard uh, from the private sector. So because, and these gonna increase also, because the, we have never seen that much interest from the private sector on anything the UN has ever done before. Um, so basically the sustainable development goal, the, the International Chamber of Commerce, the head of the International Cha Chamber of Commerce literally said these are the new business development goals. This is how the industry is seeing those. They are really keen on it. We probably have about a year and a half where they're just gonna lose attention if we don't <laughs> move quickly enough, but they are in. And so they, and there's already 450 uh, today of those standards that already exist, that our small farmers need to meet, that are in coffee, tea, banana, cacao, palm oil, timber, cotton, organic agri-food. And so I think to meet those, what we need is pre-competitive arrangement where, just like the round table on sustainable palm oil, we need something like this for pretty much all of those commodities so that it is, you, you eliminate the free rider problem. Because otherwise you're always gonna have the free rider problem where you can get on the side and not pay your share of training the farmers, ensuring there's the right infrastructure, and then you're just gonna free ride on the other one that actually are trying to do it. Another thing that we need to do is we almost add a uh, hostile takeover Unilever. And it was interesting because there was a CEO at the UN last week at the General Assembly, and he said, so what, where was civil society saying, uh, screaming and saying, well, what would happen to all these nice standards and all these nice sustainability initi initiatives that Unilever has down their supply chain if they get takeover? We do not have a no regression rule. We don't have a no, if you have made some commitment, these cannot be overtaken because they're being bought by somebody else. It, it, it is an interesting area that perhaps you could look into in terms of what does that mean uh, going forward. Um, in terms of uh, some policies, um, we, feel, we feel at UNCTAD and FAO, we work very closely with our friend at FAO, that we need poverty-oriented structural transformation in rural area. This is our report on the LDCs um, to increase labor productivity. You basically need to increase labor productivity so that you, so we need to build human capacity, uh, so you need education, research program and institution. Uh, the US Extension Service has proven very successful here. We somehow we have a hard time repeating it in developing countries, but with ICT, I think we have a new, uh, in mobile, um, mobile banking, I think we have a, an opportunity here to, to make great stride. Um, we need women extension agent. We need women giving information out there because most women cannot be in the, most culture cannot be in the field with the men. So if you don't send women, these women will not get the, the information. Um, we need the sustainable rural infrastructure, electricity road, but also the soft infrastructure, broadband access, internet access, because increasingly farmers will rely on that information so they can get the right price. Um, and then we need on investment. A lot of the microcredit is not working in a lot of these countries. Um, so it's subsidizing rural credit to bring it down to about 10%, which would be affordable for those uh, micro-grant, in-kind micro-grant for inputs. Uh, could be interesting to discuss. Um, National Development Bank, and if they can't, most developing, least developed countries can't establish those, so maybe working with other countries originally. Um, and mobile banking, but also warehouse receipt that Catherine mentioned is an interesting one. And I'm gonna stop here because I think I've talked too much, as usual, but I'd be happy to engage in the discussion. Ha <laughs>
um, Kimberly said to me, I don't think you're going to have time for a whole lot of questions. And I didn't really believe you, but these speakers were so <laughs> comprehensive um, and touched on so many different topics that um, I, I, how I was prioritizing my questions kept changing as you were talking because you covered too many things. Um, but it was great. That's a huge download on a lot of important topics. We talked about um, the importance of uh, helping small farmers meet quality and safety standards, that's really, really fundamental in being part of global value chains. We talked a lot about um, related policies that we have to uh, work on having a more holistic conversation that includes things like um, investment incentives and tax policies and ICT policies and financial regulation that we cannot have these conversations in silos lest uh, the trade dialogue not include agriculture and agriculture not include the discussion on those things. And you touched on um, regional approaches, the importance of regional approaches and capacity building. So let me start by just asking anybody, you feel free to just give me a brief answer to this, what can we be doing uh, to encourage regional approaches to any of these questions? Uh, because, you know, American companies, uh, multinational companies, they want to be investing in larger markets. It costs them a lot to try to overcome these individual hurdles to regulatory policy, for example, in small markets. Um, but at the same time, smallholder farmers, you know, trading internationally might be over the, a very close border. Um, so what kind of approaches do you recommend to regional harmonization to help smallholder farmers access larger markets? Okay, I'll share a couple of things that we learned on our trip and then a few brief observations um, that I've had for um, over the years. So one thing that we, we met with the East Africa Trade and Investment Hub, for example, when we were in Nairobi, and they obviously have been focusing a lot on regional market development. And one of the things that they did recently, Kenya had a maize shortage because of some of the com complex factors that I just touched upon. And there's much more depth there, of course, to explore. But they got businesses together and within the region to try to connect the supply and demand and, and see if they could encourage greater regional trade. I think that kind of business to business link is pretty fundamental. I mean, I think actually figuring out where the gaps are in the market um, is, is one big factor in this. Another thing that, that I work on a lot, um, which I can't stress enough, is to focus on how these regional trade agreements are implemented in practice. It's wonderful that we've had such a proliferation, I think, of stronger agreements, and I, I'm very excited about you know, connecting them all and having, hopefully, someday a continental uh, free trade area. But I mean, I do think that there's a big difference between what's on paper sometimes and what happens in practice. And that takes a lot of diff a different kind of work, roll up your sleeves, get in there and solve problems. And some of that actually really builds, actually all of it builds stronger regulatory capacity, which is really needed to make the markets work. So I think that is something that I would stress. And I think there are also some local solutions, too, to helping to aggregate markets, whether it's you know looking at models for um, farmer-producer organizations or some way to kind of bring together some of those pieces in the market, which I think can address some of these other concerns, too. But I, I won't go into that in too much depth. Um, so there are a lot of different ways, though, to encourage regional trade, I think. Um, just uh, one thing that I've noticed in the um, in the Africa context, they have a number of these regional economic communities 
um, the East African community is one, the, um, uh, the common market for East and Southern Africa, Comesa is another, SADAC um, in Southern ECOWAS, Economic Community of West African States. And in all of them, uh, they have um, um, provisions of their agreement that are focused on uh, regional cooperation in various areas. Uh, obviously, agriculture is one of them, and Katrin has done a lot of work on you know, what they're doing, for example, cooperating on seed, and um, um, others have been working with them on building institutions, um, for example, like our APHIS, that would be regional so that they don't each have to go and set up those. Um, I think that, that working with the economic commission is one of the ways that we can try, at least in Africa, to support regional integration across um, uh, various value chains, especially in the agriculture area. Um, and, and, but then there's one thing that at least um, I, I've, I've noticed, and I imagine others have as well, there needs to be a mind, uh, a mind uh, shift, uh, a change in how um, Africans view uh, each other when they're producing the same products. So, you know, if you get lots of um, farmers in countries that are in one region all producing cassava or all producing maize, and then they see each other as competitors, they don't actually see, you know, the, the, the thinking that we could all be working together so that we could get, for example, someone to come in, uh, put in a, um, uh, invest in a plant that would use cassava uh, in value-added products, whether it's cassava flour or starch or any of the other things um, cassava can be used for, and then see that if they could get um, uh, work together and supply as much of the cassava across four or five countries to that particular um, um, production um, facility, um, then there'd be less of this sort of, you know, putting up barriers to each other, don't send your maize over here because we have our own maize, or don't send your cassava over here because we got our own cassava. Um, and you see a lot of that in Africa in different product sectors. So I, I frankly don't know how you, how you get that, that shift in, 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 in thinking, but I think it's very important that African countries and in, in regional groups work together um, to somehow have production in particular uh, value chains work in ways that are cooperative and can benefit, you know, all the farmers in all the countries that are involved instead of like, well, I'm going to protect mine um, and, you know, whatever happens to yours, <laughs> so be it. So that's, that's something, those two things I think are important. Just quickly, I couldn't agree more. Um, at, and I think maybe it's a combination of what Catherine and Flurry said. You need to bring both the business and the country leaders because they do produce the same thing. So they don't, they have a hard time. The Caribbean is the same, by the way. They produce the same thing. So they have a hard time trading with one another. So I would say, I would add to your mix the original commission, but also the original development bank. Mm -hmm. um, and, and what's helping now is that countries 
are pre preparing their national voluntary reviews, right? So that's basically, now that we have, we have adopted the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, they're going back home and checking with their constituency which goal they should focus on and which one they cluster together. So now we have a sense of country by country what their priorities are. And that gives a signal as to what they may be wanting to focus on. And but bringing them together so you can see what the demand is and the supply is um, with the local SMEs, um, I think is, is the, the, the way that you would have to do it, agreed. Um, I, I'm conscious of the time. I'm going to open this up in just a moment for questions from the audience because I know there's a huge amount of expertise out there and we want to tap into that. Um, give me a really brief answer to this question because we have an immediate opportunity with the trade facilitation agreement um, going into effect with money out there for capacity building on this. You talked a lot about the opportunity in horticulture, perishable foods. Um, developing countries are increasingly able to um, garner a profit. They're, they're good at growing it. Uh, and there's huge demand in other emerging markets for it. What is the next step we need to take to ensure that um, attention is given to food going across the borders as we implement TFA? So uh, there is a provision in the trade facilitation agreement that actually encourages um, facilitating trade in perishable products. I think we should prioritize that and provide the capacity building assistance that's needed to implement that. And I think one other thing, too, you talked about having you know t product waiting on the border at both sides. We could look at things like one-stop border posts where you don't have to go through on both sides. You can go through one process, facilitate that as well. She said everything. S similar thing, we have a program called Asikuda. It's basically to modernize customs and pre-process everything, and that's along with tr cool transport is the two things that are needed. Okay, great. It is the most boring but important trade agreement you need to know about today. So if you don't know about the trade facilitation agreement, I encourage you to read up on it. So questions from the audience? I see several. So let's take uh, about three at a time, and then we can parse those out. Dan? Tell us who you are and what's your question. My name is Dan Silverstein. I'm a strategic advisor in the private sector and capital markets. And Flori, I'd like to address something that you just said about the competition among uh, producers. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with Akeen's initiative called the High Fives, one provision of which is the agro-industrial zones. I was thinking about uh, Field of Dreams in which we all know if you build it, they will come. Uh, does this play into what you see as creating the environment in which uh, outgrowers can find each other as collaborators and supporters, a community rather than competitors? Good. Thank you for that question. Take a couple of more. I think you had your hand up and I know you did too. Go ahead. There we go. Hi, Flory. Um, Flory. Flory, you and Chantal both mentioned the $150 billion worth of food that's sitting by the side of the road waiting to get picked up. Uh, it's a major, major thing. My name is Andrew Mack, AM Global here in Washington. And one of the things that we're working on is a technology startup called Agromobile, which is kind of like an Uber for crops, basically. Okay, The goal to try and get these things to market. So much trap value, so much money that isn't hitting the pocketbooks of, of, of the small farmers. So, with that in mind, and recognizing the goal to try to regionalize, which technology can do faster than policymakers, usually, right? Can, we talk, can you talk a little bit from your experience about the programs that are there to try to get good new technologies in the hands of people who probably aren't going to ever make it to the capital for a big summit, 
or aren't going to have a lot of time necessarily to go and get trained? Great question. Okay, one more, and then I'll let the panel address them. Larry Schaefer, uh, Schaefer Global Management. Uh, I don't know if anybody recognizes what's happening here, but there's a panel upstairs about women's empowerment, and <laughs> <clears throat> so agriculture and in women's involvement in the play. What I'd like to talk about is uh, we talked about interdependencies, uh, sustainable development goals. There's a holistic viewpoint that we need to take. Country change, country guidance is what Catherine was talking about. Um, the interdependencies that agriculture has with nutrition, with uh, health, with um, sustainability, with resiliency, with uh, eventual deconfliction of countries, and then education as it relates to all of those uh, pieces. When we talk about traceability of inputs, and traceability of the outputs. The requirements that you're suggesting in policy and finance and trade, when we talk about these requirements externally to try to shift and form these things to meet these standards and these objectives, are we talking about including heavy chemical usage like is being done in the United States, a move to a large corporate ag like that's being promoted in the United States, and then if we continue on this path of moving down that line in the United States like we have been, are we looking to export those models externally like what's being done right now in Africa, the export of large corporate ag and heavy chemical use over in Africa, and how that relates to our health in the United States and our eventual um, demise, as it were, in the increase of health concerns that we're suffering from in the quality of our water and the quality of our animals and the mitigation of this, the byproduct of the animals in the environment. Okay. All right. So those are three questions related to agro-industrial zones and the potential um, there to, uh, and the role of diffusion of technology and lastly the role of regulation and the some of the downside of standardization, if you will, if you disagree with the global approach to regulation. So I, I'm not going to try to answer the last one, but I, I think that, that a lot of, you know, relevant points were made about those linkages between agriculture and other sectors, health, nutrition, et cetera. Um, on, on the ag, agro-industrial zones, um, um, let me just say that at least my own experience is that um, the, um, the industrial zones that are being developed across Africa at this point have been more focused on manufactured products to date. Um, so, you know, um, textiles and um, um, apparel factories, um, footwear, light manufacturing, um, I've seen some with auto parts and so forth. So, and I, th I think that's all great. Um, I personally have not seen in the um, economic zones, um, you know, where they brought together various stakeholders in um, agricultural value chains. I, I haven't seen it. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist. But I think that right now, in fairness to Africa, because they know that the reason they only account for 3% of all world trade is because they actually don't add value to their own products, 
Um, uh, they account for very little of global um, industrial um, production um, and manufacturing that initially the focus has been, uh, at least in some of the countries, on um, trying to catch up on on, on um, value-added production of, of non-agricultural products. And especially because I think that um, traditionally um, those kinds of sectors have produced, um, have created a lot of jobs. And so if we can, um, you know, give them a moment, hopefully, to shift to see how these um, agro-processing zones can also um, uh, play a key role in job creation um, I think that that that, that will happen, um, and then I guess the 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 thing I would say about um, technologies is that you know it is I mean there are all these things that are happening that are sort of in that disruptive space, and um, you know uh, you know until Uber came along I think the taxi drivers thought they were fine, um, and and you know until you know we could we could go on and on about about uh, all of these um, um, disruptive um, technologies. But um, the one comment I'd like to make is, and I know it's you know, somewhat controversial, but you know, there are technologies that have existed in the ag space for a long time that has to do with, for example, improved seed that leads to productivity, which for, um, I guess we'll call it cultural reasons, I'm trying to figure out what's the best way. But in Africa, you still have a lot of countries that will not um, move to these new seeds that came about as a result of, of, of research and, and new technologies, things, you know, seeds that are drought resistant or um, pest resistant or whatever because of the, we call it Franken food or whatever the, uh, what's, what's the term again? Frank oh, right. You know, so culturally, and, and maybe that comes from their strong relationship with Europeans, um, many of them through you know, the colonial process. But culturally, you have a lot of Africans who, who, who don't want to use um, um, those new seeds and technologies that can do a lot to increase productivity and um, reduce um, uh, waste and all of that. So, you know, I'm not going to make a personal statement on whether they really should or shouldn't, but even before you get to the things like agromobile and all of that, um, that's like a basic one. It's been around for a long time now. And uh, the one shining thing that I'll say is that even among um, the cotton producers, they've been very um, uh, resistant to using um, new sort of uh, high-yield um, cotton uh, seeds, biotech uh, cotton. But it's now taking hold, even Burkina Faso is now using um, biotech cottonseed. So I think that despite the cultural resistance, that when they actually saw in their um, test, you know, I don't know what you call that, um, of, 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 of on the farms and saw that it could quadruple productivity, um, that basically then overcame some of the resistance there. But all around the continent, there's still a lot of resistance to it. So that's as much as I'll say on that. Do I'll, I'll add a couple of quick comments, um, and I think Flori covered the agro-industrial zones, but but Dan, India has experimented with this too. So there might be some interesting lessons to learn there on what India has done um, with you know agro-food parks, and I can share whatever I know about it, which is not everything certainly, but I can can share whatever we've studied. Um, 
I, I think your point about technology being a lever for you know regionalization and in, in increasing market scale, I think is absolutely on point. Love to learn more about your initiative. I think it, I, th I think it's definitely addressing a gap, and I think that's one of the wonderful things about technology is you can address some of these market gaps and regulatory gaps. I've actually been working on a technology piece too on no surprise um, on market regulation, but I think there are so many different applications <laughs> for technology. And we highlight a few of them in, in the report, and certainly, again, would love to learn about others, but I think you know some of them have been on traceability. Um, the Syngenta Foundation launched an initiative called Farm Force that um, helps encourage traceability and, and following standards and also brings benefits to farmers. There's another group that we met with in Nairobi called Market. Um, and Flory touches on something that's really important, I think, on improved seed. And that's a huge debate. We can't get into that this, this morning in any detail. But I will just say this, you know, first of all, I mean, farmers have been improving seed since the very beginning of Time. So, I mean, I think that we have to, you know, we have to acknowledge that too. And I think that there are ways that maybe some of the farmers' innovations could be protected more through a formal legal system. That's one of the things that we're working on. Um, but I also think that countries are starting to at least question whether or not some of these policies really make sense in light of the challenges that they have. Kenya has opened up a little bit and in, in, in is trying to make some steps towards allowing at least. Um, that you can't sell biotech products commercially, but you can maybe use them for research purposes. So I think that there's at least kind of the beginning of, of thinking about the regulatory side of that. That's all I'll say, because it's such a huge issue. And then <laughs> I opened up a can of worms. it's a can of worms, but, but, it's a, but it's important to talk about. And I think on your last point, too, about the interdependencies, you know, couldn't agree more with that. Um, I mean, I will say that on things like chemical usage, too, I mean, there is such a prevalence of disease and pests that we have to figure out what the right balance is. And, you know, Know, there are diseases like aflatoxin that can be yeah. fatal to people. So I think I think there's really a, a need for considering these things and what you know what kind of sector do you want? In India, for example, the farms are all very small, so the markets remain very fragmented. That is a bit of a challenge too. What is there something in between the big commercialized farms and the the small hold? You know, the very very small. I mean, India has been trying to figure out how to address this through farmer aggregation models, which I mentioned before. Again, there's there's a lot of work done on that, but but I, I will just say this as my point on that, that having worked in a lot of different places, I, I do truly believe that there are some good practices that can be brought to bear when thinking about some of the regulatory and policy issues, but I think that every country has to figure out how to answer some of these questions on its own, because ultimately you need a system that works in practice, and if you don't buy into it, it's not going to work in practice, regardless of the most beautiful trade agreements, which I'm a former trade negotiator, so I believe in, in that side of things as well. But I think you have to kind of, it does have to be customized a little bit. And the nice thing about our system of rules, whether it's globally, regionally, or, you know, is that there is some room always for application. We want it, you know, I think it would be nice to see it used in a way that really promotes the market and promotes food security like we're talking about. So again, a larger conversation, but agree with your point. So um, we are right at 10.30. I'm going to be mindful of people's, um, respectful of people's time. I think what this discussion demonstrates is that we need to keep talking about the role of trade and food security, all of the trade and investment tools we have at our disposal to promote food security, to help small farmers gain access to global markets, um, even when those markets are right across their immediate border. 
Um, and we've just begun the conversation, so hopefully we'll have much more of these. Um, thank you to all of our panelists. Thank you to all of you for coming out. <laughs>